podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To find out more, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Welcome everyone to the third lecture uh, from our lecture series in uh, the European Asylum System. I have the pleasure to introduce you Elspeth Gild. She's a professor at Personen, uh, a chair, the Monet chair in European law at three universities, Queen Mary in London, Nijmegen in the Netherlands, and Sciences Po, no? All right, okay, so two. And um, she's an expert um, and a consultant for a number of international organizations, including UNHCR and the European institutions. She's also the, um, the, the senior uh, member of um, a think tank placed in Brussels called the SEPS, uh, the Center for European Policy Studies. And most of all, she is an authority in European immigration and asylum law. So I'm very grateful to her that she made it to come here today. She's going to be presenting a paper on the reception of asylum seekers in the European Union, analyzing the European Union policy in this area at large. And I'm sure it's going to be a very hot debate after your presentation. So welcome and the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much, Violetta, and it's really a pleasure to be here. I think they wanted me to put on a microphone, actually. Oh, I don't think I have to do anything about it. Okay, so I don't have to do anything about it. Well, it's indeed a pleasure to be here, and I was just saying to Violetta that I'm so impressed with this series. It's an extraordinarily interesting series of lectures by people whose work I know well, and I think the, the way in which they meet and they fit together is really very, very interesting. So congratulations to Francois and to Violetta for putting together such an interesting series. I'm going to do, in about 35 minutes, a fairly limited number of things. Um, I'm going to start off looking at some figures. I'm going to talk about refugees and asylum seekers in the European context, and I'm not going to go beyond the Europe of the Council of Europe in looking at them. I'm going to start off by trying to understand what the meaning of the rather hot debates about asylum seekers is in Europe. And for that, I'm going to take you through some of the figures. The reason why I'm doing that is because one of the things I'm going to come back to is state sovereignty. <clears throat> and how do asylum seekers fit into various struggles around Europe about who gets to decide where sovereignty lies and what sovereignty is? I'm then going to move on and take you very briefly through some of the uh, legal instruments of the European Union around asylum. And I'm going to finish up looking at <coughs> uh, two 
well, small, very small parts of two judgments, one from the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg and one from the Court of Justice of the European Union in Luxembourg. And I know that Catherine has already spoken about these two uh, courts, but I'm going to look at them in a very specific manner as to how they engage in the reconfiguration of ideas about state sovereignty, where it lies, and with whom it rests, and which I think provide us with some very big questions about what is happening in terms of the relationship of where law and politics take place, and how a series of challenges, struggles, and discussions in fact are being displaced into the field of asylum seekers. So that's where I'm going to end up. But that's sort of a bit of a, um, a, a quick overview. It'll all make, I hope, a, a lot more sense once we get going through the whole session. So I'm going to start off with some of the statistics. And I think they're particularly important because we talk about asylum and we talk about asylum seekers in the European Union and we talk about them as a tremendously important component of discussions about movement across borders, the mixing up of asylum seekers, refugees and immigrants, as if this is a very important part of the population. And so if we take the best statistics available, which are Eurostat, the European Union Statistical Agency, for 2011, in the European Union of 27 member states with a population of over 500 million, it's about 501 million, but Germany's population is dropping, the, they're, they're, they've been dropping off by uh, about, um, oh, I think it's about 200,000 through the um, effects of aging. So we're getting smaller. But we had 301,000 asylum applicants in the European Union in 2011. So when we want to think about scale, a question of scale, we have a problem. How can 301,000 people be such an important consideration in an area with an overall population of 500 million? The next thing that I think is important to bear in mind in this discussion is, of course, where are these asylum seekers? Where are they applying for asylum? And I've given you the list there, France, Germany, Italy, Belgium, Sweden, Netherlands, uh, United Kingdom, Netherlands, Austria, and Greece. And you look at the distribution, and if you look at the distribution by population, well, yes, Germany has the largest population in Europe, so it's a bit unfair that France has a few more, but the numbers are very small. Germany has a population of about 80 million, France about uh, 60 million. These are not numbers that you would think of as being particularly substantial. If we look at percentage of asylum seekers per head of population, we see that, in fact, the microstates, Malta, Luxembourg, and Cyprus, are disproportionately represented, having a larger proportion of asylum seekers per head of population. But that's because five asylum seekers changed the statistics for them. They are so small. Uh, Malta only has 500,000 inhabitants. Uh, so it's like a small borough of London. Uh, Sweden and Belgium are somewhat larger. 
Now let's then put that in the context of another series of statistics. Wanted and unwanted mobility in the European Union. We've now moved on to talking about mobility rather than migration, so I'll leave you. Annually, according to the European Union's uh, external border agency, Frontex, uh, the EU admitted about 710 million third country nationals. So we admit more third country nationals to the EU each year than our resident citizens, nationals of the member states, which are 500 million. Uh, now, we're not 100% sure of that figure for a series of reasons that I love going into, but I'm really beyond it, the point of it now. How many people do we refuse at the external border of the European Union? And there, Frontex tells us in 2011, we refused 118,087 people. Remember those seven people. We count really accurately in the European Union. We know those last seven. I was at a meeting recently with a senior official from Frontex, and as I was going through these figures, I turned to him and I said, can you tell me how many border agents there are, how many border guards there are in the European Union? And he very proudly told me, oh yes, there are 400,000 of us. So I said, okay, so that means that every border guard in the European Union refuses one quarter of a person per year. <laughs> And he went, well, what are they doing the rest of the time? Well, never mind. It's not my problem. <laughs> I don't pay them. Well, I do pay them. But anyway, the next question is clandestine entry. The whole big thing about clandestine entry. Frontex tells us that 282 persons were detected trying to affect clandestine entry into the European Union. So the whole trajectory of the asylum seeker making the clandestine entry is undermined by the figures that indicate that actually clandestine entry is an extraordinarily small component. Irregular border crossing, people who are crossing the border and get apprehended, but not clandestine. There we have about 141,000 of them. And then persons who are categorized as irregularly staying in the EU, we have about 351,000 of them. What am I telling you? What I'm telling you is that these figures amount to nothing. In terms of scale, all of these figures, let alone the asylum seekers, but these figures about irregularity in the European Union are insignificant in terms of statistical data and yet are extraordinarily significant in terms of politics. And so then we have to ask the question, why are our asylum seekers and our irregulars so important in terms of politics when the numbers, according to the best sources that we have, are so relatively minor. And there we'll go to the common European asylum system. And as you all know, the European Union kicked off setting up a common European asylum system in 1999. We went through a first phase that was supposed to be over in 2010, and we never got there. So now we're going on until 2012, and we're still not going to get there. But anyway, we're supposed to be completing the second phase. And the idea is that we will have one common system. We have as our main elements these things called regulations and directives, which have either direct application in the, in the legal orders of the member states or must be transposed, and they all had to be transposed. So 
when we come to the common European asylum system, we come perhaps to one of our first questions about the um, significance. Why are asylum seekers significant in the European Union? Why are we so concerned? Why do we hear so much about them? And it's not because of their numbers. It's because they are on a fault line between the power of member states to determine who enters their territory from outside the European Union and who does not. And as we adopt the common European asylum system with regulations which have direct legal effect in the legal orders of the member states, and as the courts in the member states apply those regulations directly against national law, an increasingly normal part of what's been going on since 1999, and as the directives bite into the obligations and the reception conditions uh, directive, for instance, is applied by national courts to require member states to provide reception conditions to asylum seekers. We begin to see where the political life of this particular aspect of law may be. The, I'm not going to take you through the legislation. Instead, I'm going to take you to what I call the common European asylum system bottom line. What do those legal measures do? And the first thing that they do is that they create a system where any third country national can only make one asylum claim, which can be assessed only by one member state. Now, that's a theory in practice. We were looking at some of the uh, opinions from the uh, UN Committee Against Torture. And in some of the cases, people had made four or five asylum applications. One bam, 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 bam after the other. And it wasn't until the fifth application that they were actually getting a consideration of their case. So, um, the, but the principle is that there's supposed to be one assessment. So the member states have pooled their sovereignty for the purposes of the Common European Asylum system. They are not individually responsible under the Refugee Convention for anyone who seeks asylum in their territory. They say, no, no, we have a common area and we can allocate asylum seekers according to our rules. And if that asylum seeker goes to another member state and applies there, the Refugee Convention does not apply and we are entitled to send the person back. Um, I think Violetta's work and the book she's going to publish next year is perhaps the most interesting legal assessment of that particular claim and um, a challenge to its legality in international law. But let's leave that for the moment. The second principle is that everybody has to be, every asylum seeker must be fingerprinted. So everybody's fingerprints have to be taken. The fingerprints are stored in a database. And every time an asylum seeker turns up in a member state and applies for asylum, and the member state is not satisfied that the person is the first member state to arrive at, they send the fingerprints off, they come back. And if there's a hit, that means the fingerprints were already in the system and the person may belong under EU terminology to another member state and will be shipped out. Uh, or there's no hit, and if there's no hit, that means the person hasn't yet been fingerprinted, and therefore that member state will probably be responsible for the determining the asylum application. 
The third principle is that the allocation of asylum seekers for the assessment of their asylum applications is according to the rules set out in the Dublin II regulation. And it says that there's a whole hierarchy, but basically after the hierarchy that's lovely about family members and this and that and the next, it all sounds wonderful, except it's all completely irrelevant because of obligations in international law to admit family members of refugees. In fact, it comes down to a system whereby it's the, it will normally be the first country into which the asylum seeker arrived, which will be responsible for the assessment of the application. In order to make that palatable, there's principle four, which is there's a minimum standard of reception conditions, housing, food, healthcare, if they're young children, education, etc. So there's a minimum standard where asylum seekers cannot be left in destitution. Principle five is we're going to have common standards on who qualifies as a refugee or as a beneficiary of international protection and common procedures. That's a very hot area in our field. I'm not going to touch on it for the moment. Principle six is that this nice system is in full compliance with the Refugee Convention. Leave aside the work Violetta's been doing on whether or not it's valid in international law to vary the terms of an international treaty without the agreement of the other parties, without asking them. Seven is that it's in full compliance with the European Convention on Human Rights, and principle eight is full compliance with the EU Charter. And in all of the measures in the preambles, there are statements of full compliance. What are the consequences of the common European asylum system bottom line? Well, under the Dublin II rules with the uh, Eurodac uh, finger, uh, fingerprinting, I just had a look at the most recent annual report of Eurodac, and it turns out that the total number of hits, this is people who have been fingerprinted in one member state uh, and who've applied for asylum in another member state, uh, category one to category one, so it's asylum seeker, asylum seeker, was just overwhelmed, 7,700 hits. I said, okay, we're managing this database with hundreds of thousands, millions of people's fingerprints for 7,693 hits a year? Wow, no wonder we're having trouble justifying that expenditure. And the police are now saying that they want access to that database for law enforcement purposes because this is a lot of money for not a lot of outcome. If we look at the number of hits in respect of the member state which has been the most vocal about the system, Greece, we discovered that the category one to category one hits, they've got just under half of them, people being sent back to Greece. But when you look at um, how many people Greece sent on to other member states, they have 1,851. So um, that's uh, people who must be taken out of the 3,317. And that 720 is actually the number of um, fingerprints that the Greeks sent off to the Eurodac database that came back with a hit, but the hit was against somebody who had already applied for asylum in Greece. So they also have to be taken out of the 3,317. Okay, so the first thing is, what am I saying? We have established a system which is based on a tremendous amount of um, 
lack of confidence, of distrust of asylum seekers, which justifies the deployment of a tremendous amount of resources to create databases, to do things which are fairly questionable under data protection law, fingerprinting everybody who applies for asylum, questions that raise real issues for us in other fields, uh, in other, in other, from other aspects of human rights. Uh, for what? When the outcomes are so limited, we again have a tremendous problem of scale. What, is, what are the political logics which are justifying these resources logics which are resulting in such unlikely outcomes and ongoing unlikely outcomes? The next thing is that the combination of mandatory visa requirements, carrier sanctions, and external border controls means that asylum seekers arrive without documents. And as they arrive without documents, the fingerprinting then looks much more reasonable. We need to know who they are. UNHCR does it in the camps in Africa. Isn't this normal? And we have highly variable implementation of various parts of this common European asylum system. The most important in terms of the legitimacy of this system is reception conditions with extremes in Greece, Hungary, and Italy, where, in fact, asylum seekers cannot access reception conditions or are in mandatory detention in absolutely appalling circumstances, and other member states where the reception conditions are fairly reasonable. Well, what then happens in respect of that bottom line? What are the challenges which are appearing in respect of what we have done? Well, the challenges, not surprisingly, come from the, um, the individuals who are subject to this system. So that 301,000 asylum seekers a year that uh, 7,000 people who are being pushed around under the Dublin system and the Eurodac system who actually wanted to be somewhere else. And you say, well, in a Europe of 500 million people where we admit 710 million third country nationals a year, couldn't we just let 7,000 people make their asylum claim where they wanted to? I mean, wouldn't that just be slightly more simple than doing all of this? And the answer is no, because of the kinds of political investments which have gone into the creation of the system. And those 7,000 people who are being pushed around to places they don't want to be and being stuck in places they don't want to be have begun to try and seek legal redress, some mechanism where they can stop this juggernaut from driving over them. And the places where that seems to be occurring above and beyond all else, or perhaps with the most visible consequences, are before the two supranational courts in the, in Europe. First of all, the European Court of Human Rights in the case of MSS versus Belgium and Greece in January of last year decided, determined that in respect of poor MSS, who was an Afghan, who had had the misfortune of arriving first in Greece and then managing to get to Belgium and then was sent back from Belgium to Greece under the Dublin II provisions, the Court of Justice, the Court of Human Rights looked at 
all of the circumstances around the case and looked at the what was going on in terms of reception conditions in Greece. And by that time, the Court of Human Rights itself had condemned Greece for uh, leaving asylum seekers in inhuman and degrading treatment. That's the Article 3 um, requirement under the European Convention on Human Rights in three cases that had come before it directly. And so it said, well, once again, we're going to find Greece in violation of its obligation to ensure that people are not left in utter destitution, which is what's more or less going, is going on in, in Greece, and in detention conditions which are extraordinary, which make the stories coming out of Libya sound okay. So you, there's a, some very good um, human, rights, um, human Rights Watch reports on detention conditions in Greece, some excellent work by the, um, um, the Council of Europe High Commissioner, uh, Commissioner for Human Rights on conditions in Greece, both in detention and asylum seekers being left to left in utter destitution. So you have the European Court of Human Rights finding Greece at fault on Article 3, finding Greece at fault because under Article 13, the right to an effective remedy, MSS couldn't get a remedy in Greece. There was no effective access to justice. But the court went on and also found that Belgium was in violation of Article 3. Why? Because it returned MSS to Greece knowing, or in a situation where it ought to have known, he would be returned to a, to a situation where his return to detention and his living conditions would be a breach of Article 3. They would be inhuman and degrading treatment. And also they found Belgium in breach of Article 13, that there were the remedies that the Belgians said were out there that he could have applied for to prevent his removal to Greece were not effective remedies. Now, almost 12 months later, the Court of Justice of the European Union has to deal with the same issue. Once again, it's transfer of asylum seekers to Greece. In this case, the state from which the transfer was taking place was the UK. It was joined with a case from Ireland. And in this case, what the Court of Justice of the European Union did was it said, well, Article 4 of the EU Charter of fundamental rights, which is the equivalent of Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is the absolute prohibition on torture, inhuman, integrating treatment or punishment, or the return to torture, inhuman, integrating treatment or punishment. Article 4 of the Charter means member states cannot transfer asylum seekers to a member state with, systematic, with systemic deficiencies and inhuman and degrading reception conditions. Now, step that I want to go to, and I'm now coming into the final part of what, um, uh, of, of what I want to say today, and that is how does this fit back with the idea of state sovereignty? What we see and what we have seen is the development of a system where a set of rules which are adopted by the European Union and must be applied by the member states are highly controversial in the member states and become one of the factors around which there is a very vivid discussion, political discussion, about asylum seekers, notwithstanding the problem of scale. 
The question is who gets to decide and on the basis of what? We see the regional European Human Rights Court, the European Court of Human Rights, stepping into the fray, looking at the European Union system, and saying, well, actually, there is a fundamental flaw here. This system is resulting in breaches of fundamental rights. And therefore, in a field where you already have member states having difficulty adjusting to the common European asylum system, then being confronted with the, their human rights obligations in the regional domain, and the court responsible for those regional human rights obligations, saying, well, first of all, the rules are inadequate, and your application of them is inadequate. And the question is, where is state sovereignty in this context? In the Dublin II regulation, there is what's called the Sovereignty Clause. And we're only interested in Article 3.2, uh, which says that there's a general rule. The general rule of the allocation of asylum seekers around the European Union results in primarily the state through which the asylum seeker first arrived having responsibility. But under Article 3.2, member states can derogate if they think it's a good idea. And there is no more explanation under 3.2 than the fact that member states can derogate if they want to. How does the European Court of Human Rights use that derogation as a way around a series of problems that will create a constitutional challenge in the European Union if it finds that the secondary legislation of the European Union is incompatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. Okay? We're heading into a constitutional challenge. And what is at stake is enormous in this case. It's absolutely enormous. Because if the Court of Human Rights says that an EU regulation requires member states to act in a manner contrary to the European Convention on Human Rights, what happens? Well, the first thing that happens is your national administrators say, well, I guess we won't comply with EU law anymore. Strasbourg told us not to. Your national courts will say, well, I guess we can't apply EU law anymore. Strasbourg told us not to. We have a tremendous challenge to the constitutional order of hierarchy of the European Union and a frontal challenge to our whole, um, the whole house of cards which we've built up in the European Union of the supremacy of EU law over national law. What does the court, the, the court of Human Rights do to avoid that in the face of this completely appalling behavior, the return of this poor man to your just ghastly detention conditions and destitution of the most absolute kind, living in a park, uh, being terrified of being robbed and beaten every night when he went to sleep, nothing to eat, no clothing, no sanitary facilities, nothing. What do they do to avoid this tremendous constitutional problem? Well, what they say is, okay, we set up our principle of constitutionality in a case called Bosphorus. And what we're going to find in this case is that the sovereignty clause in Article 3.2 means that member states are not bound by EU law to send MS back to Greece. Belgium didn't have to. It could have used Article 3.2 to consider his asylum application 
themselves. And by using Article 3.2, what the Human Rights Court does is it says, we are not going to attack the constitutional integrity of the European Union, but watch out. If you don't clean up your act, this may be what happens next. What does the Luxembourg Court do, the Court of Justice of the European Union? Well, it also is fascinated by Article 3.2, but it is fascinated by Article 3.2 in quite a different way. The British government in uh, NE argues before the court that what that discretionary power in Article 3.2, the right to consider an asylum claim, means is that it's for every member state to make up its mind as it wishes. And so the Home Secretary could decide in her wisdom whether or not to consider an asylum application or to send the person back to Greece. It was an unfettered discretion which belonged to the state. What the Court of Justice says is, well, actually, no, it isn't. Although the Strasbourg Court has said, yes, it is, to avoid a constitutional challenge of the first order, the Court of Justice says, well, no, it isn't. You can't decide your discretion under Article 3.2 as you wish. In fact, you can only decide to exercise your discretionary power, or you must decide to exercise your discretionary power if there is a risk of treatment contrary to Article 4 of the Charter, that is, the risk of torture, inhuman, or degrading treatment, or punishment. And therefore, that discretion is not an unfettered discretion. That sovereignty clause doesn't mean state sovereignty. It means EU sovereignty. And in addition, before the Court of Appeal, the UK had given up all hope of arguing that the Charter didn't apply to it, notwithstanding the protocol. So what happens when the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights meets the European Convention on Human Rights? And there, what we see is a mixing of our two principles. On the one hand, the Strasbourg Court saying, you can do sovereignty as you wish in your international organization, the European Union, as you want. And the European Union saying, you must do state sovereignty in accordance with the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. So, in the light of this particular set of challenges, what is the response of the EU legislator? And we know what it is because we've just had the uh, European Council's version of the redraft of the Dublin II regulation, we're calling it Dublin III. And it seems that what they've decided to do is to leave what was called the sovereignty, um, the sovereignty um, uh, clause, and they're now calling it the discre discretionary clauses in Article 17. So they're not going to touch that. They've recognized that they're going to be in difficulties on this. What they've done then in Article 26 is they've provided for an appeal right on uh, Dublin 3, what will be Dublin 3 removals, which doesn't have automatic suspensive effect, so it's going to be contrary to what the Court of Human Rights said in MSS. And there, there is no sovereignty or discretionary clause. So there we're headed into exactly this battle 
of constitutionalism that we got around through Article 3 to what will be the new Article 17 that is likely to arise again under Article 26. But then the Commission had proposed a suspension mechanism that if a member state was really badly organized and couldn't to sort itself out at all, i.e. Greece, that there would be a suspension mechanism and the Commission could uh, propose that nobody send anybody back to that member state for the duration. The member states couldn't agree on that and instead have agreed on an early warning system, which means that where a member state seems to be failing, the Commission and the European Asylum Support Office, it's one of our latest little agencies, we stuck it down in Malta because they like asylum seekers so much down there, um, the, they, they, that on information from EASO, the Commission can make a proposal that there's an early warning problem. Now, what is all this about, this suspension mechanism and this early warning system about? Well, the suspension mechanism would clearly be a response to the European Court of Human Rights saying that a member state ought to have known. It could not have been unaware of the human rights violations in another member state. And so if there was no suspension mechanism for a member state, the other member states could say, it's all good, Gav, no one told us, it was no good over there. That the member states shouldn't want that indicates an uh, a much greater concern about trying to retain national sovereignty than trying to get themselves out of trouble with the European Court of Human Rights. And so they've gone for this early warning system. And in my view, an early warning system will clearly not be sufficiently robust in order to satisfy the test of the European Court of Human Rights, picked up by the Court of Justice of the European Union, of member states ought to have known and could not have been unaware of the fundamental breaches of human rights, whether in the European Convention on Human Rights or whether in the Charter, uh, when seeking to apply their system of the uh, Dublin II regulation of moving asylum seekers across the European Union. And that is where I will end up. Back to the question of whose sovereignty, where is it, how do we understand it, and how do these battles around sovereignty and who gets to determine its content, where it lives geographically, where it lives politically, end up being carried out as wars on the backs of asylum seekers trying to get international protection in the European Union. Thank you very much, and I'm open for questions. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk slash resources slash connect.